On this episode of the Driving Improvement Podcast, my guest is Mark Crossfield, a PGA golf coach in the United Kingdom who has built a massive online following with entertaining instruction videos, travel tips, and golf club reviews. Boasting more than 334,000 subscribers on YouTube, Crossfield has created a successful business by connecting with viewers and providing highly educational and fun content on multiple platforms. Crossfield is also a Cleveland Strixon ambassador, as well as the host of two podcasts, Getting Stuck into Golf and the Hack It Out podcast with Scott Fawcett and Lou Stagner. He also travels the world with a video camera in hand and friends in tow, showing golfers his exploits and the best places to play. On this episode, we discuss the evolution of coaching via social media and the risks involved, what it's like to test and review the latest and greatest clubs, and how a guy who started coaching at a driving range now has over 223 million views on YouTube. All that and more on the Driving Improvement Podcast with Mark Russo right now. Well, welcome into the Driving Improvement Podcast, everyone, and I'm pleased to have with me today Mark Crossfield. Mark, how are you, my friend? Yes, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Always nice to catch up with you, Mark. Yeah, absolutely, man. So uh, uh, tell me how you're doing. I know uh, as we were chatting, you know, you're in kind of lockdown, unfortunately, over there. How are you and your family doing and hanging in there through this whole thing? Yeah, we're all doing well. Um, we're doing what we need to do. We're in lockdown. My wife is uh, a key worker or essential worker, they call them now in the UK. So she's off to work every day. She's a school teacher. Yeah. Um, our kids are being homeschooled. So it's all challenging at times. But also there's some fun side to it. You've got to pull some positives out of the negatives. Um, sure. We spend more time together. Even getting involved with their schooling more has its benefits and is fun. It's it's a little hard, like some of the questions, like my youngest is only nine. And I think I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> so that's been fun to see how clever they are and how not clever I am. So that's always nice to see your kids doing well like that, which you miss at school when they go off to school because you don't always see how they're doing. So there's been some positives as well. Yeah, I can certainly sympathize with some of that. I mean, my kids luckily are in school, but when I'm ha when they have been home on remote days and I'm helping them with work, I'm kind of wondering like, how did I ever pass this stuff? Because <laughs> I have no idea what he's doing. Uh, thank goodness they have good teachers because I, I, they'd be really in trouble with me teaching them. Yeah, uh, absolutely, sure. absolutely. What's uh, Mark? What's what's your take these days? You know. Uh, it, through this whole thing, as you say, taking the positives out of it. What's your take on the state of the game uh, these days? Because, you know, over here, I think I saw the the industry's uh, rounds are up like 14 or 15 percent. And I know specific clubs in my area are just absolutely jammed. Uh, so there has been a positive effect to our game to some degree through this whole mess. Yeah, I think golf, certainly if I speak UK based, when we were out of the lockdowns that we have been, I think we've been in three official full country lockdowns. And then there's also been regional lockdowns at times as well. But when we've come out of lockdowns and golf is allowed, there's been a definite positive push for golf. More rounds played, I've heard. Um, equipment sales were high apparently from manufacturers telling me um and we were able golf was able to start pulling on other sports because 
football, for instance, wasn't allowed. So UK soccer, football. So those people who were fringe golfers or played a little bit wanted to outlet. They, you know, they'd been locked up, so they wanted to go and enjoy their time on the golf course. Um, so, you know, golf was a great opportunity for people to get out, do exercise, play a sport, be competitive, meet friends. Cause at one point you could only play with one and then you could play in fours. So mm. they could meet one mate or three others at some point as well. So yeah, I mean, golf, I, I, I do hope golf realizes in a global pandemic, which is awful. And we're seeing human disasters across the globe, which is just heartbreaking, but on the lighter side, golf needs to understand, I think, how lucky it is. And we need to be more grateful for what we have when it returns, certainly in the UK. You know, people whinging about pace of play, maybe the person in front of them not being as good and getting in their way and all those kind of golf things that we've got so in a rut of, of doing. And I know golfers will fall back into them because it's, it's unfortunately the nature of the people who play the sport to a certain extent. But I do hope that people start to feel a bit more appreciative of their time out there and maybe running around in three hours compared to three hours, 40 minutes. Even though it might be a bit frustrating, it's certainly better than being locked up uh, or losing loved ones like many have. So I hope we feel grateful for it when we get back personally. Yeah, uh, I think that's well said. And I, I certainly uh, we could use all a lot of that uh, patience and understanding and all that in probably other areas of life uh, yeah. after all this is over for sure. Uh, so Definitely. what, Mark, give us a little bit of background in terms of your your start in the game when you're growing up. What, what's your origins in terms of how you got into the game of golf uh, before we sort of get into your current state, uh, where did you begin with the game? Okay, so my father started me. My dad started me. He tried to start me when I was probably seven, eight or nine. Bought me some little clubs, but I sold them to a friend and went and bought sweets with the money, I think, because I was playing football at that time. Like soccer, football was everything. Golf was like he plays golf. I want to run around and kick a ball and score goals and be like the people on the telly. Um, and then strangely, just one summer holiday in the UK, I was 11 and a half, nearly 12, I think. And there was a local pitch and putt, which I think, do you know what a pitch and putt is? Is that what you call them in America? You know, a short course yeah. and par threes. Yeah, anyone can play. You go and hire clubs wear what you like right which is obviously unique for us in england that you know golf was you wear clothes you got to have the equipment and so on and so forth so back then you know pitch and putt it was more anyone could play um i just got hooked i went once and i remember not ever not going again that summer holiday literally went back every day i i, I can't remember the person in the booth serving me but they must have been he's coming back every day this kid uh, i just and then from then on i i just wanted to get better it was the, the personal achievement compared to the team sports that I had played was just so exciting the selfishness of um golf uh, I loved it you know it was me now it wasn't me doing a pass to someone and them getting it wrong or someone laying it onto me in football me getting it wrong it was all me and I love that challenge and I remember just thinking like I just want to get as good as I can at this. So I kind of got hooked at 12 playing pitch and putt and I didn't really stop playing until I was about maybe 22, 21, 22 when I started to turn pro at 19, 20 and I wanted them to teach more and I was kind of fed up of playing. But my my predominantly playing life was as a 
youth stroke junior, which is where I had my kind of better achievements and where I played probably at my height of of play, if you like. And what made you make the the progression then into uh, into coaching? I mean, it, a lot of us, you know, play the game, realize, hey, we're not good enough to do this for a living. Absolutely. Uh, so how can we find our way in this game? And for a lot of us, the coaching side ends up being where we go. What made you get into that? So it was in James and real natural progression for me. It wasn't even an effort. So I love taking lessons like from the start. I have always loved trying to understand what does make me good or bad. Like what, why am I better at golf than another kid? Like, what is it? Is it talent in inverted commas? Is it genetics like why am I able to do something where the kid next to me is making it look so hard like what what is it so where I love the selfish like the selfish quest to get better at golf um as in you know try and hit the ball straighter and hold more parts and I love practicing I also love trying to understand why one chip would go closer than another why a seven iron would be hit straight eight times out of ten well why did the other two not go straight like how can I get that ten out of ten um, so the, the progression for coaching started pretty much almost as soon as I started the game at some level. Mm. Um, I had a couple of really good coaches through my life, really analytical, non-emotional based coaches that really turned me on as a golfer. You know, they were ahead of their time. It sounds silly now, but they were some of the first people to use cameras, which obviously nowadays sounds funny because we've got mm. launch monitors and force plates and 3D captures. Um, his name was Peter Thompson. He was a great coach. He taught a few tour players. He had a grid behind us. He had a grid on his wall, which you swung in front of, in front of a camera. He had a big database of students, stroke, pro swings that he would refer to. Again, way ahead of his time before computers made that all much easier to compare to. Again, looking back now, we know that's not always the best way to coach, but um, back then it was like, it just excited me that someone was so analytical and it, it just made me think, yeah, I, you know, I want, I want to be able to take a sport that is so emotionally charged. Like if you think about playing golf, like people are in pretty heightened states of emotion, aren't they? Which then makes it hard for them maybe to make the best choices. So to go to a coach where emotion played no part, he just wanted you to hit X position for X reason. I don't care what you feel like. I don't care if you like that or not. That's what I believe you need to do to be better. And if you signed up like like I did, yeah, let's do it. Let, let's go like straight at it. Um, so like having a few good coaches along the way, I think really helped me get inspired as well to be a coach but uh, for me it really did start at the age of 12 onwards like why is that ball why did I fin that ball on that par for equals and then why on the next hole did I hit it the 10 foot like how can you have such variance I, I want to understand this uh, so it kind of started as soon as my love for the game started it was the same thing and I see it as no different now to be fair do you think that 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 experimentation and failure in the game as you play with your swing and, and mess around, if you will, with it is a super important part to becoming a good coach. Cause I, I find when you talk to other coaches, it, their own failures sometimes are massively helpful to their coaching style because they've been there. They've been in the student's shoes. They've done, 
they've done it on purpose and they've done it not on purpose and sometimes yeah. in tournaments. Do you think that's helpful? Yeah, I do. I think it's helpful on every level. So if I take it to when I was full-time coaching in London, um, so my failures absolutely played their part and my understanding of how to beat those failures emotionally or not and then beat those failures with different swing thoughts and feelings that I could try and share with people. But also at the same time, like I, when I taught in London full-time coach, um, I was teaching up to 90 lessons a week. You know, I was seeing 90 individuals a week. It was six days a week, and it was from eight in the morning till nine at night. Like, it was a crazy amount of people, but I loved it because learning from their failures as well is what made me really have – I kind of – the analogy I use, it's similar to, like, pilots doing their miles. Like, you have to see every student – to be the best coach you can be and we all know we won't ever see every student which is why we keep striving to be better and better and better and better but if I only see middle-aged man used to play football has some skills you know can deliver the club swings at a certain speed how do I teach this brand new golfer from Egypt when when I say to her we're going to do putting next week she says to me what's putting hmm. you know if I don't have that experience as a coach then I'm not, I, the first time that I meet that lady, and that's a real lady that I used to teach in London, she came for really social purposes is why she wanted to come. She wanted to do golf, something to walk around and do with her friends. She wasn't particularly cared how she played within reason. She wanted to be, you know, half decent, but had coming from Egypt, she'd just literally never, ever seen golf. You know, it was like she lived across the way, heard that there was a golf school and went, you know, what's golf? Can I have a go? Um, if you don't meet that student, how do I help the next person and the next person who comes along like that? So I think not only my failings, which I agree with what drives coaches often, it's the failings then also of so many students watching them try and do what I've said unsuccessfully and me then having to be really quick and think of another way of putting over the point in a more creative way to then help them achieve their goal. And that's, at the end of the day, we, you know, you've got to have a certain knowledge base. You've got to, I think you've got to have a certain understanding. And I do think that's something golf pros still don't give enough respect to, but you've also then got to know how to deliver that knowledge to the demographic that you teach, which for most golf pros could be anyone couldn't it it can be from the person who's never seen golf to a tour pro and anywhere in between um so their failings as well and mine with them and then trying to turn them into successes is i think the best learning ground you could ever have yeah and, and to that point mark we we hear that that word so very often consistency um I, i've probably heard it three times already you know this this past week you know and it's like obviously we get a chuckle out of that, but why is it that improvement for so many golfers is such a struggle in this game? Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, when I, again, teaching full time, the biggest thing, one of the biggest kind of standout patterns that I would see through success and what you would define as non-success in the game was to do with goals, people's goals being way out of proportion for what they really could achieve. So I think, they were classed as a as a non-success for themselves very quickly because their goals weren't realistic. You know, I like playing tennis, but if my goal is to play Wimbledon, 
I'm only going to be disappointed as a 45 year old guy. Like, <laughs> I've lost. Right. I might play seniors, but I'm not because I'm not even that good. Um, so I think goals is one thing that then you could equate to why people then would put themselves or the coach might think that they failed with them. Um, and then also the ability to learn golf lessons. I used to remember thinking this isn't this lesson isn't about what golf information I give to this person. There's a percentage of it that's about that, but it's actually about their inability to learn. Like this person has a distinct inability to listen to the instructions, take them on and then do like they haven't got the learning skill needed for this lesson to work. So now what we're doing is again, it's which is where I think the skill of the coach shines through or not. As soon as you identify that it's now, what can I do to like crash course this person into understanding what they need to do to learn. And to give you a, like a pretty out there, uh, example of that. I used to teach a lot of wealthy people when I was teaching full time in London. We were in Regent's Park, really affluent area. We had, you know, um, captains of industry, pop stars, film stars. Like it was real. It was a mixed group of people, but there was predominantly it was very wealthy people. And I used to get a demographic of male CEOs of massive corporations come for lessons. And the, the generalized stereotype with them, and it's a generalization, but the stereotype was that they just wouldn't listen because they spend all day telling people what to do. They I was like in my 20s. They're not listening to me. And I remember saying to a few of them saying, if you don't do what I've just told you to do, you know, I'd go politely at the start and they're just not listening. They're trying to drive the lesson. They're trying to bring their <laughs> agendas on. And I remember saying to a couple of them, just straight to them, if you don't do what I need you to do, I don't mind if you leave because this won't work. Like you need to at least try what I've said and you need to stop telling me what you want to do. And it was actually the direct confrontation with them that made them a respect you more once you put it out there and the lessons from them on were so smooth and B made them realize that they need to turn their learning heads on to achieve. Right. They can't say, Oh yeah, but it's because I take it to here's what you can keep saying that, but that's not the reason you're slicing it. So we can, keep trying to get in that position and you can continue slicing it or you can listen to what I say and we might stop you slicing it. Um, so I think failures, A, it needs to be defined, which is going to be defined by goals, and B, to, un to think that everyone who comes for you for a lesson has the skills to learn, I think is a mistake. You need to... I almost started working from a basis of that these this person hasn't got the skills to learn and I might have to tell them or teach them some skills of how to learn. And then if they have, I'm pleasantly surprised and off we go. Yeah, that's that's gold there, I think, Mark, because it really is uh, a balancing act with everyone who walks in and your communication style has to be able to adapt to that person. I agree with you. You get those folks who want to want to tell you what their issue is. Yeah. You kind of want to say, hey, look, you're here for a reason, so let me do my job. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, again, they have to be willing to learn. I know I, one of the best quotes I remember Sean, listening to Sean Foley say about Tiger was that Tiger is one of the greatest learners in the history of the game. And yeah, I thought, I wow, that's that. really interesting because yeah. he was able to make however many swings you want to say he's had and still win with all of them. It's just yeah. crazy. Um, yeah. So if you had to define your communication style – how, how would we do that? What would, how would you define it? Oh, that's a tough question. Um, direct, 
honest like i'm not afraid to be honest and that's one of the things i see i used to when i was in london i worked a lot we had four or five coaches at the center and certain number of them i would oversee you know i would watch and hope that they're doing it in the style that we want to do and the one of the biggest things i would notice is similar to the point i just made a younger coach often didn't have the 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 and this isn't always the case because there's some good but as a general rule they didn't have the ability to take control of the lesson similar to they didn't have the ability to end a lesson you remember that when it was used to be mm-hmm. hard to end a lesson just one more it just one more it and I, I mean i got into a you know i had a very busy diary so lessons couldn't be five minutes over because at the end of the day i'm an hour over and i want to go home um and i remember taking clubs out of people's hands and standing on the mat so now i've got control like you're over there there's <laughs> the door thanks for coming Go near the door and I'll pass you your club back. Just stop hitting. Um, so I would say it's very honest. Like I, I'm not going to try and just be your friend. I've got one objective and that is to make you better. Now, that isn't to say I'm not going to be your friend, because if being your friend is all that you need and in turn that makes you achieve your goals, which is to make more friends and to be in a social environment, I would hope I'm clever enough to sense that, pick that up, and I'll be that friend and we can have fun and do games and challenges and try and improve skills while relating to each other as friends. But I'm I'm not afraid to tell people that if you're here to achieve your goal of single figures, this isn't about you telling me, you know, people used to come in and show me their card. Do you ever get that? They used to come in and show me a scorecard and I used to think, <laughs> what kind of... <laughs> You made triple bogeys and double bogeys like every amateur does. I've got no idea how you did that. The scorecard doesn't show me anything. So I can politely look at your scorecard and go, hmm, interesting. Or I can say, you don't need to bring me those scorecards. It would be better if you brought back me, like, how many were in play, how many were out of play, how close did you hit it to the hole, or how many greens did you have, you know. So I would say it's direct. It's fun as well. I'm not afraid to have fun with students. Like, yeah. I, I'm not, I like a little bit of Mickey taking and often that breaks the ice. Like, can you do this? They do a swing, nowhere near what you ask. And I would say, should we have another go? You know, like, I'm not afraid to use a bit of fun and like take the mick a little bit. And often they like that, you know, and if they don't, I read it pretty quick and I change my tack. But 99.9% of the time breaks the ice. They realize it's fun as well as learning. And then off we go. So direct, honest with a little bit of cheekiness. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. That's yeah. perfect. So uh, how does, uh, how do you uh, progress from, you know, you, you teaching 90 hours a week and you're, you're progressing your coaching experience and business. And then now, as you sit here, uh, as I'm doing my research yesterday, you're at over 223 million views on yeah. YouTube. Uh, how does that happen? <laughs> yeah, how does it happen? Um, it happens. I've never been afraid to. I've always enjoyed trying to look at where technology is going. Like I'm, I'm always an early uptaker in technology. I had launch monitors years ago, probably way before most people was using them. Certainly for any content. Um, I've never been afraid of cameras. I've always enjoyed photography. So the use of cameras has always been part. I mean, I've never taught lessons. My first ever lesson I ever did was with a camera in a studio. So I've never been that guy on the range and then progressed the cameras. Like I've only ever taught with the help of technology. So it's, it's just seamless. And YouTube at the time when I started years ago, maybe 12 years ago, I think it is now, 
you know, it, it was very new, certainly in the golf era. And I saw the potentials of what it could be for me having a voice over the industry that had its own voice, which was basically magazines, which at those times and still a little bit now, but certainly those times was a voice was which was just so controlled and contrived and just generally wrong. Um, so having the freedom to have my own voice with technology just really excited me. No different to getting a launch model really excited me. So it, it was quite a natural progression for me for YouTube because I, I just could see the potential that, you know, it, it did feel like I could be a TV producer in my own bedroom. And that again was something that I just was excited about. I, I liked, I was interested in editing. I've always enjoyed editing because it's the creative side. I've always liked photography and I didn't have any money to employ actors. So I talked myself. Um, so, and I generally can do that. Um, so it kind of was like a, a perfect mix of all my skills for all my life. I've had an artistic interest and a sporting interest. And generally they bang heads against each other. Those two interests, because the two groups of demographic of people are generally very different. The arty side to the sport side are generally not watching the same films, listening to the same music, maybe even thinking the same things where YouTube just seemed to be like, this is amazing. This I'm allowed to use my sports excitement and skills and my art skills and bring them into one place. And it works just perfectly. So, um, yeah, I, I saw it as just a natural step for me of having a voice. I mean, I remember the days of YouTube, like just putting music on your videos when I started was impossible. Like you couldn't do it because there was no like YouTube's got its own library of music now. And there's plenty of sites that you can spend not much money and get very top quality music. I got I've got guitars, which the guys can't and girls can't see behind me here. But I, I've always played music. I used to play in bands. So I even did my own songs. Even to now, the music on our channel is a lot of my own music, which I dabble in writing music. Um, again, it was just like this is the perfect mix of all my interests in one place. Um, so, yeah, it kind of led on that way for me. So as it's evolved for you, what are some of the lessons that you've learned, like kind of maybe some of the do's and don'ts and failures you've had with it over time? Cause you've produced a ton of content, obviously. So yeah, you learned plenty from it from, from day one to now, much like teaching lessons, you've probably evolved. Like we all have from lesson one to now. So what have you learned? Uh, the biggest thing for me, the biggest takeaway thing for me, and it's been so interesting to watch YouTube change over the years. Um, I only have ever made videos that I've wanted to make um, and I still do to this day. And it's interesting because YouTube, where it stands at the minute, actually doesn't really benefit you that much um, if you want to make the videos that you want to make, certainly as a golf coach, because it's so much more now about the algorithm and trying to obviously you're competing with loads more people. Um, and it's it's turning YouTube has turned into a bit of a tabloid newspaper a little bit. If that do you know what a tabloid newspaper is yeah. them in the yeah. state, you know, so yeah. it's it's headline based. It's shock stuff. It's it's not. The, the days when I started, think about the people who were on YouTube. Like, So I was on YouTube. Who else was early to YouTube who was doing some groundbreaking things? I mean, Joe Mayer, you know, he goes on YouTube and says some stuff that people are like shocked at, where now it's just common knowledge amongst all golfers. 
um you know so it used to be a, again and that's what used to excite me so much a platform where i could challenge people i could challenge them to try and not get stuck in myth and not get stuck in those conversations that you hear at the range or down your golf club that you know just think that's not going to help them if they keep you know spending hours and hours on the putting green when they're only getting it 150 yards off the tee and they get it a bit further or whatever. That's a bit of a cliche in itself, but you know what I mean? If they're just not focusing on the right things. So it was so exciting back then to be able to make content that challenged people to think differently because the magazine certainly didn't want to do it. And I would say that's still for me now, that's still the thing that drives me. Some of my best videos, in my opinion, they're not the what most watched or most subscribed to videos, and that doesn't bother me. Like, I, I, if I was making content that got me subscribers and viewers only, well, I wouldn't respect myself. I certainly wouldn't want the industry to respect me in any way. So, and I often think that I think yeah, I want to put videos up there, certainly on certain subjects. Some videos are fun based and they're different, but you know, I want to put videos up there that you'll watch and think that's quite clever. Not thought about that you know that that's what would make me most proud back then and it still does now so i do see people now using the platform to be youtubers yeah and i know you love that which is fine (laughs) yeah well well, that's that's fine like if you want to be a youtuber you'd be a youtuber but um like just think about this like youtube doesn't understand what's good or bad golf content there's no one in youtube going that's clever piece of golf content. YouTube is basically rated by its viewers. That's how you get moving up the algorithm. You get good interaction and get a video really moving amongst viewers. So at the end of the day, it's your lessons that is rating the content. Now, no disrespect to our lessons, but you've got a job and I've got a job because you've got knowledge that they don't really quite possess yet. So the fact that then they're rating that content shows you how that platform becomes tabloid because the best way to get their interest, well, is to maybe not make the best content in the world. So I think you need, if you, if you know, YouTube now, whatever way you want to go, if you're a golf coach and you want to, you know, you're interested in coaching and you want to use it, to promote yourself, just be true to what you are, which is what I've always tried to do. Don't try and be a YouTuber unless you do want to be a YouTuber and off you go and try it. Just, you know, produce content that you're proud of and that you feel that you'll be proud of in years to come and content that, your peer group would be proud of. For instance, you know, if I can stand up at an Andrew Rice coach camp, which is where I met you, I think, for the first time, and play a video that I'm proud of, then that's my goal. Always has been, always will be. Um, So I think it's about being true to what you want to be, whatever that is. And if you want to be a YouTuber, that's cool. But if you want to be a golf coach, they're definitely very different, different kind of contents. Yes, that's... A great, I think a great lesson there too, Mark, because I think, you know, every coach at the end of the day, there's no substitute for actually being good at what you do. You can put these videos out and as you say, be a YouTuber and, and all that. But if it's not very good or, and your lesson book isn't full, then there, there's something hollow about it all. And I feel like from my perspective, I've put some videos on my YouTube channel and everything just to have some content things out there and things to reference. But at the end of the day, my strength and passion is, is the interaction in front of people. Um, my communication skills, yeah. engaging people. So you have to find what your strength is, I think, 
and really nurture that in some way, right? I mean, would you agree with that? A hundred percent. Yeah, I, I totally. And I used to say, and I said it in the coach camp talks I did, that some people doing videos actually harms their business because they're not particularly good at it. It doesn't mean they're not good coaches because they're much better as a one-to-one. So they put this very unpolished amateur looking video out with maybe some duffs in the information and you'd watch it and think, well, I know that coach and he's much cleverer than that. He's obviously just like clammed in front of camera, but put it out. And I would say to coaches like you don't have just because every golf coach and his dog is putting out golf content now, predominantly most of them are doing it because there is a financial reward now. Um, and that's not really the goal of doing it. I mean, I started YouTube. I had three years of YouTube where it wasn't paid. There was no there was no monetization of YouTube. Um, and there wasn't two and a half years of that. There wasn't even talk of monetization. You know, there, there wasn't even a hint that YouTube would ever be monetized. I did it because I wanted to tell people what I knew because I was proud of what I was learning. Um, and again, still to this day, I see it. And yes, there's financial rewards now, which are nice, but that still isn't the driving factor behind. Like, I'm not a big analytics person, lots of analytics in YouTube, and you can drill down into analytics and then start just, you know, delivering content that's getting all the clicks and views. And then I just think, well, with the odd times I do look, they're often videos that I'm not particularly thinking I need to remake four times. Um, so I'll just carry on making the content that I'm proud of and try and maybe push the needle a little bit in ideas of content rather than, uh, you know, chasing the YouTube dream a little bit. And that's the trouble. As soon as you put finances there, that is always then going to slightly muddy the message a little bit. Mm. And that's all I've seen over the years is the message is just getting more and more and more muddled. And I do worry a little bit for the user, like, you know, the I see users posting um, videos at me. You know, I've watched this. Does this make sense? Is this true? And I just think, oh, why are you watching that one? Um, <laughs> like, you know, it's just a geezer saying something. Um, like, really? <laughs> but it's, so that, it's a double-ended sword where YouTube is brilliant. It gives us all a voice and it's a freedom to have a voice. And that's brilliant. And it's the most powerful part. But if you think about it, the unregulated side of the information in a profession that we try and specialize in is also its worst part. And now when you've got so many people using it, it's not even 50, 50 anymore for me. As I, and you know, I see it as I actually see the golf pro community slowly starting to almost giggle at YouTube to a certain extent. And I don't blame them to be fair. Do you know what I mean? It's almost like, Oh, another YouTube video. Like, and I just think, yeah, I get why you're saying that because there is a lot of muddy in these waters. It's so funny too that you you mentioned that about you know double-ended sword. I literally have that written in my notes, double-edged sword about YouTube because it it it, it seems like sometimes it is. You know, students say, "Oh, I, I fall into the YouTube trap," and then I'm saying, "Well, you you ought to be careful there." And then I'm like, "Well, I have a YouTube channel." <laughs> it's like, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. It's almost- I want to use it as a as a place where I can send my students to follow up, but you start to worry about yeah. this balance. Like, and that's the question too, Mark. Is this whole thing about content is it is it a trap to some degree for those of us in the teaching business because you feel like oh well I have to produce content to be successful and I'm not so sure that you need to, but you almost feel like you're getting left behind if you don't uh, do something. 
Yeah, I don't think you need to at all. And again, it depends on what demographic you want to hit. you got to remember as well, for me, when I started YouTube, I live in Exeter. Exeter calls itself a city. In America, it would barely be a village. I mean, we've got 140,000 people in Exeter. Like, it's not a big city. Um, so 140,000 people in Exeter surrounding, let's say surrounding villages and what have you, you're pulling on about 250,000 people. So it's not a big audience that I'm coaching. Out of that 200x thousand people, how many of them play golf? Well, that's going to be smaller. How many of them play golf and have lessons? That's going to be a smaller. So there was a part of me thinking, if I only think my local environment for coaching, now I've moved away from London where I was teaching crazy amounts, then, well, I'm earning not much money and I don't want to be 40 or 50 and not being able to pay my mortgage or, or retire at a certain age and be stood on a lesson tee at 70, still trying to take 20 quid cash in my back pocket from someone. Do you know what I mean? Not that I do that, but <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? Um, so I also saw the internet as a chance for me to communicate to a wider audience. I had no intention and still kind of don't physically, even though we do have remote channels now, but I had no intention of those people coming for lessons for me. One of the biggest things that my lessons and club reviews always stated and still do, go and have lessons. Watch this video. Use it as an education. Use it as a chance to go to your coach and say, should I be doing this? This makes sense. Don't say I'm your coach. I don't want to be your coach. I'm not your coach. I'm just trying to put information out there that might spark you to actually go and have a lesson. And when I started, what was really interesting, coaches definitely didn't like what I was doing. Why are you giving this away for free? It devalues what we do. There was a real resistance amongst coach, coaches. And then after a few years, it completely switched. The amount of coaches that would say to me, cool, the amount of people that come for lessons with me because they've watched your videos, like, thanks for, you know, keep doing the good work. And so and I used to think, yeah, like I'd, I don't want them to come to me. I wanted more people locally to come to me or like from a bit further around but I don't want a guy from Scotland coming down for a lesson with me go and have a lesson off someone in Scotland like not like anything against Scotland it's more like you know you don't there's good coaches near you you've just got to make sure you're finding them um so actually I think there's a benefit on a certain extent that it was promoting people to go and have lessons the same way as maybe obviously on a much smaller spectrum. I'm not comparing myself with the PGA Tour, but, you know, you watch a PGA Tour event, you might want to go and play golf the next day. You know, it has that effect. You watch a few coaching videos and it's like interesting and it sparks your imagination. Well, you might go and book a lesson in the next week. That's brilliant. That's that's my dream. You've listened to some education. I hope it made sense. But go and speak now to the doctor. You know, this is just an article on medicine. You now go and speak to the doctor to see if that medicine is the medicine you should be taking or not. Because um, I've never met you, so I've got no idea if this medicine works for you. And I still say that to this point with the, with, with the reviews. Go and get fit. This is just my opinion on this club. There's some database-driven ideas to show you that the manufacturers, what they're saying is maybe a little exaggerated or not. But don't make this video stop you going and testing. If this video makes you put this club on the test list, that's cool because you're going and testing. And if this tip makes you go and have a lesson to see if it works for you with a coach, that's brilliant. But don't think I'm solving your games because yeah. um, that's certainly not what I'm trying to do. 
Yeah, speaking of the club stuff, Mark, I mean, you do, you've done a lot of club reviews. It, how did you get into that part as well? I mean, what have you always been sort of a, a club guy uh, and, and wanted to play around and tinker? Um, what made you sort of get into the club review stuff? Because th- that stuff's great. Yeah, so I'm not much of a tinker, actually. I was very much a settler in equipment because I think I was quite quick to realise that it is so much to do with me more than the club. Um, I had a website selling golf equipment and I learned pretty quick that if I put a review on that website, those pages did well in organic search on YouTube because people would hit a product page, stay there for a long time, obviously watching the video. And that would help the rankings in my product pages for those products. Um, As soon as the video started to get any kind of momentum, I got out of that because it just at that point, it didn't make any sense. I didn't want to be selling the equipment um, because it kind of, again, it was just a bit of a gray area and what the point of the video was if you had that agenda at the end of it. Um, so that sparked it a little bit. And then there was with the, uh, with the, you know, we had a track map, I think because I worked with a guy called Steve Gould who developed golf software. Um, we had maybe the first track man in the UK, maybe even Europe. So getting my hands on a launch monitor that early and being able to do these tests on clubs that I've never been able to do was so, so exciting. Um, So it did become a little bit of like a journey of discovery on what actually is right and wrong with all these marketing messages. Like before launch monitors, I wasn't able to say if a club was six yards further or 10 yards further, like the manufacturers were claiming. So I think the club things developed from there as well. It was a real interest to understand as much as I could about equipment, because at the end of the day, if you're coming for a lesson with me and I can fix you by changing your grip, I'll change your grip. If you come for a lesson with me and I can change the loft of your club by two degrees and it makes you hit your goals, why would I not have that knowledge? I, I still to this day think that fitting and lessons are far too divided. I see them so much as the same skill. Like, I just don't understand. It frustrates me that more coaches aren't more knowledgeable about equipment and vice versa, that fitters seem to not want to touch lessons. They just want to fit. And I just think, how how are they not the same skill? They're just tools to allow me to make a player a, a, a better player. So there was a bit of that as well. You know, I wanted a crash course in understanding what the difference of the MOI made, why the loft sleeve made it open or close, what difference loft actually made. Does the shaft flex really relate to swing speed? Does, you know, like they're telling us, swing slow at this flex, swing fast at this flex. Well, I I get an independent study from the RNA that say they don't find that. I get another independent study from the oven at the time, Nike, saying we don't find that. Two other manufacturers told me we don't see that even though their marketing material on the website was dumbed down to say, swing at this speed, get this shaft, swing at this speed, get that shaft. So I thought, all right, well, I could test it myself. So you start testing it and you're thinking, oh, my God, yeah. I mean, I would have told, I don't know how many slow swingers to look at this shaft, and I'm not seeing that pattern in flex relating to speed at all. It's so player-specific. So if I don't know this as a coach, I'm not as good as I can be. So... It was a mixture of those things, really, that really drove me to then really delve deeper into equipment. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more on the equipment stuff. I mean, I, I we have we had this discussion, you know, often in, in coaching, too, about a student's intention and what they're intending to do. And I think also to that end, you know, a golf club 
that doesn't fit them is going to uh, limit them or force them to make a different intention. Uh, and I often tell students, especially those who think they're not good enough, we hear that, you know, I'm not good enough to get club fit. Like, look, if I give you shoes that are two sizes too big and tell you to run as fast as you can, you might do it. It might not be pretty, but you might get it done, but we could make it a lot easier if your shoes fit. So it, to me, it's like, get the clubs that fit so you don't, you can start to get better uh, as you progress, you know? So I mean, I, I did a test recently using my 3D Swing Catalyst uh, force plate mm-hmm. where I'm working on club head speed to try to max my club head speed, which is obviously really fun at the moment. Lots of people are doing it. And I've just, you yeah. know, since because of lockdowns, like I'm going to see where I can go with this because it's an interesting experiment and it helps me as a coach help people who want to get faster. Um, so I did a test on my eight degree driver compared to a 12 degree driver. And all I tried to do was swing both clubs as fast as possible, but I had to deliver the same loft. So whatever I delivered with my loft, so let's say 15 degrees from an eight, I deliver 15. The 12 degree, I'm not allowed to now deliver 17, 18, 19. Lo- I've got to deliver the same loft. So we're going through the same launch window because that's my launch window, but I'm going to swing them as fast as I can. I could not get the 12 degree within I think it was two or maybe even four mile an hour of the eight degree because as soon as you gave me more loft and asked me to hit the same launch windows it took all my vertical force away and made me become more horizontal to try and contain loft and that's not where I get my power from so then I thought well how many students are delivering an inappropriate loft I'm forcing the wrong loft to make a point so here's a 12 rather than eight so four degrees well you know I mean I've taught students delivering 22 degrees of dynamic loft swinging at 115 miles an hour and I think well cool they could probably swing at 117 if we got them delivering some proper lofts it's like so to your point absolutely like just that one test on loft was like wow that's fitting as well as that's just the same thing it's fitting stroke teaching it's no different it's it's one thing um I, I don't see it as different and that that does I, I do think that's a massive hole in our industry still we have this big divide there are fitters and there are coaches and not many of them blend that well and I, that does surprise me yeah how do you get your hands on new equipment to do the reviews how do, how do you how have you made that work with the equipment manufacturers so in effect i'm on well apart from one manufacturer who's not in my opinion my biggest fan they don't send me anything so i wait for that product to release and then i buy it um everybody else all the major manufacturers and other manufacturers they want me to review their club so they send clubs so they will say here's the club they i have an agreement with all of them where they have no input on the content all they ask for is a fair test. So they want to know the rules of my test. They want me, they want to know that I understand what the equipment does because they don't feel I can test it properly. You know, if you've got a lighter shaft option compared to a heavier shaft option and I'm not comparing that and that's one of their big selling points, they're going to go, well, we're not going to send you another club if you're not going to actually demonstrate what we think the club does. So it's a two-way arrangement where they send me the clubs, I send them back when I'm done, um, but they have no input. And I proud myself on that. It's something I've done from the beginning. They have no input on, on the test. Some like them, some don't but they're happy and because I feel my knowledge base is quite sound. I feel that they respect 
my opinion enough to just let it rip you know here's the club we trust it you do what you need to do but here's the points that you should be testing kind of stuff um there's only one manufacturer who doesn't believe that <laughs> what uh mark what trends are you seeing you know at good or bad uh, in new equipment i mean we talk about all distance and everything else but is there any trends that you don't like and where equipment's headed um not really i think each trend has its purpose i think the lower lofted iron trend is um debatable what it does if it's good or bad or not um i think um i do think we're going to see more lower lofts start to become available as people chase distance i think we're going to start to see longer shafts again um and i do think we need to see more lighter shafts i've literally filmed a video today with a 35 and a half gram shaft and the speed increases in that shaft are hilariously like it's an amazing shift in speed difference. Um, so I do think we will see some shifts, but the manufacturers aren't going anywhere. The clubs have leveled. I do think the lower lofts is debatable if it's a problem or not. But where it hurts some, it, it helps the other. I, I, I literally don't I don't see it as a massive problem. So, Mark, just kind of switching to the business side a little bit, um, I'm often curious about risk. Um, you know, talking to people who are successful, there's often risk involved with that. And I'm curious about uh, what your take on that is. Is it necessary to be able to take some risks to sort of jump to the next level and be successful? Um, it's hard to generalize like that, really, because obviously sometimes what seems a risk to me or to you might not seem like a risk. To someone else so it, again it would have to be defining that risk i think at all levels you have to unless you're very very lucky you have to keep challenging yourself and challenging yourself is risky i mean if i look at my life i moved to london to make sure i became well one of the busiest coaches in the country was my goal and i achieved that by moving away from where it was comfortable i took a bit of a risk to go and work in a very different environment um but it, it even though it could be classed as a risk it wasn't really as well because there were opportunities there and um you know i was young and it just felt like the right next step to try and push myself forward and then enough i think about my video content i distinctly remember a time where i thought to myself like so when i started doing youtube i was a full-time coach still I was basically doing two full-time jobs to make it work. I was doing the video content full-time and the um, teaching pretty much full-time. And I remember saying to Matt, who now works for me, like, I wonder what would happen if I just, just did videos. Like, you know, I've grown up with my income coming from physical lessons, meeting people one-to-one and -one, paying you like, shall I just give it a go going all out video and like forget that side so that would have been classed a bit as a risk as well but again at the same at the at the time it just felt like the right next step so I do think you have to challenge yourself I think you have to try and make sure that you certainly in our profession I, I do see golf a bit as a it's a bit of a vacuum golf and you can get lost within it it's a very safe environment Certainly, if you're in certain club environments, um, it's very easy to start kind of expecting or you kind of you start thinking that golf almost owes you a living. And I think as soon as that starts happening, you won't be doing the best lessons you can do if you don't realize that it's actually 
like it, it sounds silly but it's like it's your honor to be able to teach these people like it's quite a, a um a level of respect and trust that they're giving you and as a coach you need to have that desire and trust to give back to them otherwise it is too easy just to fall into uh, a rut a little bit i think golf pros do because it can be sometimes almost too easy um you know yeah. you've got your membership or whatever you do just come for lessons and it's not as if golf isn't a cash rich sport you know we're lucky at the demographic generally certainly in the uk is you know it's a wealthier demographic than it is people that are scraping money together um so i think yeah i think you do need to take risks but i think i would call it more challenging yourself than risks calculated risks more than reckless risks whatever that means for the person um but i do see golf pros get into ruts they definitely get into easy ruts and then it all does get a little bit bitter sometimes i always feel like it's almost again like they blame other things rather than looking more back at themselves to think oh maybe i should have gone that direction maybe i should have got the launch monitor and tried to charge different amounts of my lessons rather than moaning that launch monitors are wrecking golf almost kind of those ideas so mm -hmm. yes to a certain extent but i think and i would hope they would be calculated as well yeah. And do you feel like the, I had this discussion with, uh, well, with multiple people really, but I find that, you know, as you, you kind of mentioned there, the, if you get too complacent and sort of resting on your laurels and then it gets real easy, but I feel like for a lot of those who are very successful, they have that edge where they're always unsure and they're always worried no matter how successful they are, that it may come crashing down, you know, it, those people could leave them as you said we're lucky to do what we do it's golf right like it's not it's yeah. not brain surgery it's golf so yeah, you know yeah. they always feel like yeah the next the next day it could all it could all leave you so you've always got to keep trying to move forward and get better you know you yeah, feel like that I, I do, that's yeah. a common thing yeah absolutely and i think with our profession as well obviously i'm older now unfortunately so you see it i mean when i started i was younger and generally trying to talk to older people where now i would i'm probably you know i'm not the oldest coach in the world but i'm certainly now more the mature end there are plenty of young hungry pros who are going to try and push things forwards in the direction they want it to go and i think it's your choice to embrace and learn from those people as much as looking at people more your peers and older as well i think one of the greatest examples of that is dennis Pugh, the uk coach who unfortunately now isn't he used to be on twitter a lot and isn't now and i totally understand why he isn't you know he could easily have sat back on his laurels he's at one of the most premier clubs in the country he had a tv pundit job he um had his stock tour player um clientele as well as his very very wealthy members but he when he was interacting online he would challenge ideas certainly that i would put up and other coaches would put up because he wanted to learn he wanted to know what, what is all this noise i, I don't want to just accept that i'm successful he's coached montgomery and Ryder cup stars and the rest of it he isn't then he's not just trading on that card he's then going okay what this guy is saying is interesting i don't know if i agree with it or not i'll ask him some questions and i used to think you know and dennis was older than me uh, he, and he had a very 
I don't want to speak for Dennis, but financially he was like not doing it for the money anymore. He was financially fine, um, but he had a desire to just keep being the best version of him in his profession that he could be. And I used to really admire that. I used to think, yeah, that's like, I don't know how old Dennis is. I, and I'm going to say something out of turn now because he's probably in his 50s, but I'm <laughs> guessing he's in his 60s and he's still... Yeah. You know, he wants to understand what is going on. He doesn't want to be a 60-year-old on the way down. He's still a 60-year-old or whatever age is pushing forwards. And I don't I don't think it matters what stage you are in, in your professional career, certainly in our sport. You you see it. I mean, it's terminology is changing, technology is changing, ideas are changing and being challenged every day. And I think it's our job to make sure as good coaches that we try and understand all of them, even the ones we don't agree with, particularly, you've still got to try and understand what the idea is because it might apply to a student. Uh, and I relate that to moment. I, I have interesting chats online with people about the rollback debate with golf balls. Um, and it's a really interesting debate. And I sit on the fence of it. I think there's positive sides for rolling back. And I also think there's, crazy ideas in relationship to rollback and equally crazy ideas for the people who don't want rollback and, and and equally positive for the people who don't want rollback as well um but what i do notice is the discussion is still clouded with ridiculous amounts of myth so you get a good amount of the most outstanding thing with that and it I really makes me think of golf coaching is that it's almost this is a random figure i'm plucking but it's like 80 percent of the discussions almost both sides are just not actually factually true. So even some of the rollbackers are wishing for something to fix golf. And then you show them facts saying, well, you've actually already got that already. Um, and it, you, you think, all oh, right, like it doesn't go anywhere because they now feel like they're being told that what they believe is wrong, even though you're showing them facts, you know, like one, an interesting one is people say things like I want one guy the other day said, I want 25% of the par fives on tour to be, free shotters because I posted a tweet saying do you want them to be free shotters and then I got the stats from I think not last year because it was a funny year 2019 and it was about 27 percent of the shots in the par fives on the PGA Tour are free shotters so this guy was like <laughs> <laughs> I, like I just posted like you're welcome there you go you've got it already yeah. well, why are you moaning about that um so I think it's interesting it's I see similar parallels in golf you know Oh, the truth's in the dirt. Launch monitors are rubbish. I remember those years ago. No one says that stuff anymore. People have accepted that yeah. measuring is good. I see the same with ground pressures. People saying we don't need to understand how they're pushing in the ground. It doesn't do anything. And, well, if you've not used it, you might think that as soon as you start using it, you'll think, well, actually, it's as powerful as what the launch monitor is. It's just another way of me looking inside the student and not having to rely purely on their feelings and, given a measured truths. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think you just got to remember to keep pushing forwards because the ones coming up behind you generally are. They're going to keep pushing like you will have when you were a, a young pro and probably still do now. I know I push as hard as I do now to try and understand as I did when I was 20 starting out. Yeah, that's perfect. And, and you know, I, I agree with all of that and, and also the the whole technology and, and moving on and trying to learn more of that. I mean, I know you've done a ton with swing catalyst and I just got the pressure plate not too long ago and I'm getting the force plate and yeah uh it's amazing how much I've used it uh just in the we'll call it six weeks that I've really put it into play at work it's been unbelievable so it's 
it's just having more tools in that toolbox to help you help everybody have have a little more fun absolutely uh, so mark what is a before we sort of uh finish the home stretch here what what does a week look like for you so i'm predominantly creating content to be fair um that's what my week consists of filming content um to feed the many channels socially uh youtube and twitters and instagrams and the rest of it um we i've just started a online coaching platform where we're the pandemic i think has really allowed us to see how with the use of data we can coach remotely i think more successfully than ever before i've never been a particular fan of online coaching i've avoided it for years and years and years i did an experiment before the pandemic started so last year using a student and a shot scope so a shot scope's a data statting you know they collecting watch data on their stats um to see how big a changes i could make for a student without touching their swings and how remotely i could help them and it was a really interesting study it was it was something that i was interested in stats in relationship to golf i think is so much in its infancy and we're going to learn so much like we have done with launch data and what have you and at the moment ground forces as we learn but i equally feel if you think of stats at the moment we relate everything to the pga tour stats well, we are not even sure yet if PGA Tour stats really relate to different demographics of handicap stats. I'm not saying they do, but I'm also can't say they don't. You know, what skills do we need to make sure that different handicap groups are our best at to make sure they're getting the most out of their round? So we've also got an online platform now, which we do, me and Matt, who I work with, who's another coach, we're starting to branch out into remote lessons, but it's highly stat based. Like we, we want you to give us X amount of rounds before we start trying to work out what we're going to change. So rather than purely look at a position in a swing on a video and a Zoom call chat to get a feel from them, we want to see what they're actually doing on the course as well. Uh, obviously, at the moment, that's been slowed down by people not being able to play. But there's people in certain parts of the world, like we've got people in America who are collecting stats right now ready for us to give them online help so i definitely see my coaching moving much more online and based around physical data and helping people move that data it's one of the things that really interests me as well when i talk to i've spent a lot of time over the years on the european tour following um with different companies that i work with watching their fitters work working with the players talking with the players and the coaches and it was really evident still that lots of coaching on the european tour is based on placebo still it's very based on trying to put a band-aid over that person who's got a certain feeling that they need that week and where there's still very much a place for that you know you've got to turn their performances around within two days a day like there's still a place for that i'm not saying there isn't but it did amaze me how little of the european tour players are using stats and their attitude towards stat-based improvement you know very much still I don't need stats to tell me what I'm good and bad at ideas. And it was eye-opening to see um, where I haven't really got massive interest in doing anything with tour pros because I do think they're a different entity and something I've never really been that interested in in the coaching world. Um, I definitely see it in the online platform that we're doing now, My Golf Games, it's called mygolfgames.com. Um, 
hopefully some interesting developments over the next 12 months and onwards with that. So working on that and producing content. Um, and if we were allowed to see people, the odd lesson here and there as well. But lessons is now much more a smaller part, physical one-to-one lessons of my my day. I do find it really exciting to try and deliver interesting, complex, sometimes messages to a massive audience. That That's interests me as much as trying to deliver a one-to-one lesson to those different demographics I used to when I was coaching at London um so I do some people do you know online lessons or online videos it's just throwaway tips and all the rest of it and where I understand that idea and we talked about it even in this pod me personally I think trying to deliver like I did a video last week talking about regression to the mean So we're talking about a real stale statistical based idea around how coaches and fitters, I think, are reading stats really poorly. And basically, in statistical terms, they're selling noise rather than improvements. Um, You know, I loved making a video. I worked with a stats guy and he said, do you really want to do a video on this? He said it's quite geeky and quite stale, but I was hopefully able to deliver it in a more engaging way that I mean it's 50,000 views and doing all right and it's the most boring stale um, kind of you know stat based subject you could talk about but it's actually not it actually will help you make better choices with your clubs and with your coaches Um, so yeah if you haven't watched it you should check it out as a coach it's a really interesting idea because your ideas of improvement you might find actually aren't quite improvement if you understand stats a little better and i know for me personally in my profession growing up and with my training through the pga i've had zero statistical training you know reading right data from a launch monitor is the launch monitor delivering it to you in a golf pro friendly manner that's not how my stat guy wants the data you know he has it in a very different format and then he drills deeper into finding patterns that actually do exist. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's an interesting one because it, it, it will literally there were two pro after I posted it, there were two pros who were speaking to me straight away. Going, Can you just explain that again? Because like when I'm well, you might find that. So if you hit the ball 250 yards and then you try a new driver and you hit it 260 yards, but your standard deviation with both of those clubs is 12 yards then statistically that's not a gain as a rule of thumb. You would have to repeat that test 50 times and it come out that way every time for it not simply to be tossing a coin 10 times and having he- eight heads and thinking this coin's really good for heads tossing. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting concept that I think a lot of pros are getting wrong. So um, my day-to-day weeks and days do consist of me thinking I have funny conversations with myself in my head and then think, how can I get that into a video that someone actually can relate it to and use and improve and what have you? It's it's fun. I enjoy it. I I like having conversations with myself in my head, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of moving data, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you Mm. about the the speed gain stuff that you and our friends, Andrew Rice and Martin Chuck have been sort of prodding each other along here and watching you guys do this. Uh, how are your numbers looking and how's your body feeling through all this? <laughs> so, yeah, body's feeling great because I've never, ever worked on my body in my entire life. 
So when I started working with Michael Carroll, Fit for Golf on Twitter, if you don't follow him already, give him a follow. He's great information on fitness training and lots of it tailored around golf. Um, he basically said, you know, we did an assessment and he said, you're, 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 if 10 is Arnold Schwarzenegger body training and one is that you've done nothing, he said, you're probably a two. And I said to him, look, Michael, you're being kind there. I reckon I'm a one. I've literally done nothing. So I was lucky to a certain extent that I could only go forwards from there because literally you just start doing press-ups every morning and instantly I'm going from seven press-ups to 12 to 15 to 20 to 30, literally in the space of three weeks. You really feel like you're improving. So body feels good because I do feel like I'm stronger than I've ever been because I've never worked. Um, my whole my whole ethos of hitting shots has completely changed so my golf basically i am precision 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 like literally the people who have played with me through the years giggle at the targets i can hit certainly with my driver you know i would look at blades of grass with my driver literally i'm gonna land it five yards off that bunker it'll hit the slope run down and i'll be on the you know right in the middle of the fairway or wherever where now I am literally looking at a hole and I'm finding out where the boundary of the course is. I'm literally going, right, I can't go right at those trees. And there's another hole left of the one I'm playing. So I could hit it there. And left of that hole's a road. So basically I'm now going, there's a road and a row of trees with some trees in the middle. And I've just got to hit it between the row of trees and the road. Um, so just changing that mindset allows me to swing in a very, very, very different way. Combine that with the fitness, combine that with the knowledge through Swing Cat that I've been learning over the last 12 months, six or eight months. Um, yeah, my gains are comedy. I mean, I've gone from, so on quad, are you track man or quad? I think you're track man, aren't you? Yeah, so yeah, track man. let's say two to four mile an hour difference in club head speed is the general pattern I find with those two machines. Um, not the ones right or wrong. People don't understand that often. They just commit, they measure different points of impact, as you know. Um, I was on quad 105 topping out, 102s could swing at 100 miles an hour. So you're talking like 98 to 102 on track man was where I would game normally. Uh, carrying 262 was my average. Now, what I was very good at doing is getting the maximum carry for what I put in. I'm like four up, 15 degree dynamic loft, high toe strike. So I'm properly squeezing out every penny of what I put in. I'm now swinging, averaging around 112, some sessions 114. Ball speeds now where they used to be around 150, 153 maxing. I'm averaging 162 now, and I can get sessions where I average. Well, I hit a few 166s and 164s and 165s. I've touched a 170. I've had 171 ball speed at 170. So I want to touch 170 more so I could game at 165. So it is, it's 20, 30 yards, or it's 20 yards extra carry, which... I'm only getting older. And if you look at the data, I've seen the data of people's uh, club head speed, stroke, ball speed, stroke distance as they age on the PGA Tour. And it only goes one way. It goes down. But because uh, I started from zero, I'm actually going up at the minute. So it, it, it's so exciting. Like, I love it. I absolutely love it. The unfortunate thing and the big question everyone asks, 
right? You're in it 20 yards further, but are you more erratic? And can you play golf like that? And I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know. I, I believe I can. But because of lockdowns, I literally this year, I reckon I've played six times at the most. And I was only really trying to hit it at full speed, maybe on two of those occasions. The rest I was still, you know, developing my technique and what I was trying to do. So I'm really looking forward to putting it to test on the course. My, I'll give you an example. My scoring average as I grew up. So when I used to play in tournaments, I would make nearly every cut I ever played in but I wasn't winning events. I was top 10ing and that would be like, well done, Mark, good finish, you know, seventh, ninth, eighth, in good events. Um, I now feel like I could shoot six under as well as 10 over. So all I've got to mm. do is toss that head out of, out of eight times. If I can toss a head on a coin toss six times, I'm going to have a week where I might win and then a week where I'm just not even making the cut. And that, to be honest, would be quite good fun because not that I'm going to compete anymore, but as in just as an analogy, my playing career, I, I enjoy, I had some decent success in events, but I was a, you know, I was a journey plodder. I was just like level par, one under, one over, level par, like ridiculously consistent, which I thought was actually a skill. But the people who went on to get onto the European Tour that I used to compete with, David Howes, who played Ryder Cup, people like that, I would have weeks where I'd beat them because they missed the cut. But then they would have weeks when they win because they would shoot an eight under, a two over, a four under and a level right. um, where I just was never able to shoot an eight under. You know, I'm shooting four under and I'm pushing hard for that. Um, but generally I was shooting around level pass. So I do feel with the extra distance, there could be some horrendous rounds, but there could be some exciting ones as well. So I'm up for the challenge. It's fun. It's it's, yeah. and I, I'm not stopping. Like I want to get, I want to, I want to hit 170 ball speed consistently. Don't know if I can do it. If I can average one six fives from 150, like that's ridiculous gains. I think. And as a coach, I do it as well, just because. It gives me better experience of the next student who comes along and when they want to make gains. I can I can make all the mistakes for them, basically. I've done yeah. this. I tried that. You might find it works, but success rate with that is lower than that and so on and so forth. So it's no different to any of my coaching. I, I'm doing it because it's fun, but I see it as just knowledge that I'm growing, which is all exciting again for me. Oh, yeah. yeah it's been, and it's been fun to watch. Yeah, so we'll thanks. have to keep watching, see where you hit it. Yeah. Uh, Mark, last thing here is, you know, you mentioned earlier some of your, your other, other interests just briefly, but you know, when, when you get away from golf, you've got so much stuff going on and, and your hands in so many different things here. What do you do to recharge the batteries and get yourself relaxed and just, yeah, good question. You know, family time's precious for me with my, I've got three kids and I play a bit of golf with my oldest Fanula. She enjoys playing, um, so I enjoy watching her experiment and play and practice. And I play with my parents. So it's a nice chance for us all to get together and just have a fun game. That's nice. Um, my boy plays football. So I watch a bit of his football. We, um, I play guitar, which I love doing. That really relaxes me and gets me away. I used to play tennis a lot, but I find that my elbow gets punished mm. and then that affects my if i wasn't doing speed training it wouldn't bother me but if i do 
trying to hit the ball further and then I go and play tennis, I literally can be out for a month where I, I still hit, but I shouldn't because it's like inflaming. Um, so I do miss tennis a little bit. And I've just started. I don't know if you, they can't obviously see the podcast. Can you see my hat there? So I've got LA Lakers. LA Lakers. I've just started watching basketball. I go to the States loads before the pandemic and American football would be on the screens in bars and places I'd go. And it, it never really interested me. I didn't really, I relate it to rugby a bit and I'm not a massive fan of rugby. I just, big pads didn't get it. If the basketball came on, I always used to watch it end to end, exciting stuff. Like I just thought that looks cool. I want to understand that game more because we don't really play basketball. So literally in the last month, I've bought a subscription to the NBA on their app. I've picked a team. So I've picked the LA Lakers because I work with Shrixen and Shrixen are in Huntington Beach. So they're not far from, well, I guess that is in LA, I think, but it's definitely very close to LA if it's not actually in LA. So I thought if there's a chance of going to a game, that's probably going to be my biggest chance. I've heard of the Lakers as well. I I, I am worried. You tell me, you tell me, Mark. Um, so by choosing the Lakers as my basketball team, um, is that like that's is that too obvious? It's one of those obvious ones, is it? Is, what does what as an American? Because I was I was close to the Knicks, and I was close to the Brooklyn. What were the Brooklyn ones? I can't remember what they were called. Yeah, um, because I do I love New York as well, but I, I'm I'm worried that Americans are going to look at me and think UK guy Lakers is just far too obvious. <laughs> well, there are a few of those teams, Mark. Like for uh, for basketball, I would say, yeah, probably the Lakers. Football, it's usually the Cowboys, Dallas Cowboys, and baseball, it's New York okay. Yankees. So usually, right. it's, it's you know people pick those. But hey, at least you're watching and you're enjoying yeah. the game. So it's 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 all good. It's yeah, all yeah. good. You got to pick somebody. You got no allegiance. So yeah. I, I like your I like your reasoning. Yeah. It's good. And I also what I love with the basketball as well, and I don't know if this is what I'm finding, is it's just so stat based. Like every commentary, like there's a bit of chat in the commentary, but it's generally they're just chucking stats constantly. Like he's, you know, he's 13 from 17 shots and he's, you know, he's he's picked up X amount of rebounds from X amount of goes. And it's and then you look at the stats at the end of the game and you can see why the team's won. Like last night's game. LA Lakers v who are they for the Cavaliers? Was it Cleveland Cavaliers? Is it? Is that that's the team? Is that you know? And LeBron James's stats were just the best, and that's like he changed the game with his stats. And I just I, I love the fact that they're uh, obviously I'm not listening that closely, so I might be saying dumb stuff here because you know what it's like when you listen to golf commentary and people like it can be hard work sometimes, and it when you kind of understand it. But I was impressed. I was like, I love the fact that they're chucking stats at me as I watch and it really makes yeah. me we've got a hoop in our garden because my kids love doing it and um you know I'm just like doing free throws and seeing how many I get out of free I'm just thinking like if I can't get at least two out of three I'm going to be pretty hopeless here um because you look at their stats and it's crazy isn't it like the free yeah. the free pointer like that's impressive throwing isn't it like, I measure it out in my garden my garden almost isn't yeah. long enough to practice a, a free point of throw <laughs> yeah. you watch some of these guys like Steph Curry yeah but that's it, Steph, Steph yeah it, it, he'll throw it in from the runway in the tunnel yeah uh, it's it's incredible yeah it's incredible his free pointer record I noticed he'd gone like number two or something of all time and I was watching a few of the highlights of their games because I almost picked that San Francisco team because I do like I've been to San Francisco and I loved it there um and i'm watching his get uh, like because he's not the tallest guy on the 
caught, is he? Like I look in and thinking, all right, he's not like a Michael Jordan or, you know, he's not like this massive athlete. Not saying that he's not an athlete. I'm sure he is tall. It's just the others are so tall. But then I'm watching and thinking, oh, my God, like, does he miss a three-pointer? Like, it's just amazing stuff. But I guess any sport at top level, when you watch it, you do marvel, don't you? That's that's the beauty of it. Well, maybe uh, as an idea going down the road, you do this speed training stuff and everything, Mark. Maybe your next thing for your YouTube people is to, <laughs> and for all your followers, is to see if we can get you to dunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you do all this work in the gym and all your speed, and, that, and then we'll see. Can Crossfield take it to the hoop? Yeah, absolutely. I guess that I would... need to get my vertical jump going a little higher yeah. for that. Than you I... got a way to measure it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm not sure I'll film that, but I'll definitely see if I can do it. <laughs> well, listen, uh, Mark, I really appreciate you taking some time out of your day uh, away from uh, your busy schedule and your family. Uh, it's great to catch up with you and um, keep doing what you're doing, man. Uh, you're you're doing great stuff for our game and for the golfers out there and, and putting a lot of great stuff out. Uh, I wish you, wish you the best. And boy, I hope this this whole lockdown mess and everything ends soon so we can get you back over here and, and have some fun in the States. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I know you love traveling over here too. Yeah, I do. I wish you the best. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me and absolutely stay safe everyone. And um, yeah, I can't wait to get back to America and um, enjoy myself over there. One of, the, one of the best countries in the world. I love visiting America. Well, thanks Mark. Talk to you soon. Brilliant. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much to Mark Crossfield for joining me. What a brilliant conversation. Mark is so much fun and an amazing smart coach and business person who really loves the game. Uh, his thirst for knowledge and his curiosity really show up in all the fun that he creates in his content. We mentioned earlier, be true to what you are. And I think no one is more true to himself than Mark Crossfield and golfers and the game benefit. Thanks again to Mark for joining me. I'm Mark Russo. I hope you enjoyed the Driving Improvement Podcast. And until next time, we'll see you on the lesson team.